today we're going to talk about last night's GOP debate, uh, and then we're going to dive into a childcare crisis that is racking America. And then we're going to talk about this new piece from Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker that alleges that Elon Musk basically has a shadow government. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, well, I haven't watched a debate in a while. That was something. Uh, You predicted that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy would have a good night. What do you think? I felt that he did. In my view, I think DeSantis probably had the worst night of people. But but before we even get there, I think we should set the stage and, and, and say who was on the debate stage. So there are eight people who qualified. We had DeSantis, Christy, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Vivek, and then Doug Burgum and what is it, Asa Hutchinson are mm-hmm. the kind of wild card pair that I think less co- have been getting less coverage in general. But um, MSNBC had a good kind of mash together of all the greatest moments from last night for those of you who did not have the time to spare to watch this all unfold. Welcome to the first debate of the 2024 presidential campaign live at Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee. This decline is not inevitable. It's a choice. We need to send Joe Biden back to his basement and reverse American decline. Joe Biden has weakened this country at home and abroad. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence for it. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, What's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama, and I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing on stage tonight. I am unapologetically pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted and I had trouble having both of my children, so I'm surrounded by blessings. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say it will take 60 Senate votes, it will take a majority of the House. So in order to do that, let's find consensus. To be honest with you, Nikki, you're my friend, but uh, consensus is the opposite of leadership. When the Supreme Court returned this question to the American people, they didn't just send it to the states only. It's not a states only issue. It's a moral issue. Don't make women feel like they have to decide on this issue when you know we don't have 60 Senate votes in the House. Seventy percent of the American people support legislation. But 70 percent of the Senate does capable not. Of experiencing okay. pain. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. 
I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I had no Most right President to Pence. overturn the election, and Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Thank you, Vice President Pence. All right, Ricky, you were saying you felt that uh, Vivek had a strong night and that Santis is the loser? Yeah, I mean, the fact... I was surprised to see that the main target of almost everyone was attacking Vivek of all people. That was definitely interesting. I think he had the most, took the most hits, which makes me think, I mean, it demonstrates to me and I think to a lot of viewers that he is someone that is legitimately being seen as a threat for everyone else who's vying for, for runner up. I would say the moment for me with DeSantis that I think could become one of those like campaign loser moments was raising the hand over whether or not you would support Trump. And I think, so the the order, since that's audible and you can't see it as a podcast listener, Vivek was like, is right next to DeSantis and shoots his hand up. And then Haley, Scott, and Burgum all put them up. And then there's like, Pence puts his hand up sort of. Christy does like in a very off halfway way but you know everyone's kind of putting their hand up but DeSantis is after that first flurry of everyone and he looks around like as though he's looking for the social validation of that before putting his hand up in a way that looks really beta for for lack of a better (laughs) word in my opinion like it was really wimpy and by the way I if this is not even about my own personal opinions about how they should take a stand on that issue because they all signed a pledge as a contingency for being on that stage, which I don't think should be a part of the primary requirements personally, but they all did sign a pledge. So I they should have absolutely no problem putting their hand up. And it was the most wimpy shit I've ever seen from DeSantis, the looking around thing. I just, that, I did not like that. That did not sit well with me. Yeah, I think like... <sighs> It's, it's, you know, I'll stipulate to the fact that, like, this is why I'm asking you. Like, I'm not exactly a great arbiter of, like, who's winning a Republican primary. I can only say from my experience in politics that the goal, especially on an eight-person stage, is to garner attention. And and I I really go on Twitter, although I was on Twitter last night. I I like to go on Twitter during debate nights because it gets feisty and everybody's kind of all focusing on the same thing, which can be fun at times. And I feel like the two people who accomplished what they needed to politically last night were Vivek because he was a relative unknown who mm-hmm. now is a household conversation for better or worse for him. Yeah. And I think largely you need that attention. And we I, we can go through what he said. I mean, I have a lot to say about the things he said, but he certainly was the focus of attention. He was very prepared and he has a clear lane, which is he is definitely MAGA, young. He's like the young MAGA guy. And like he, he has certainly... And by the the reaction from Trump's camp, he has accomplished a lot in terms of like validating for people who are like very squarely aligned with Trump, validating with that group of people. And then surprisingly, Pence, like I think Pence is, he accomplished what he needed to do, which is Pence is polling really low. And he actually spoke the most. I was looking at the data this morning. Uh, I think everybody thought Vivek spoke the most, but he actually just speaks faster. So I think he probably said more, but Pence actually had the most airtime last night and I think had a lot of moments like and I think for both Vivek and Pence like people are gonna have strong opinions about what they said but you can't deny that they didn't command a large presence on that stage and uh in that sense I think 
I would imagine both of them will come out doing well. And I agree, DeSantis just looked terrible. He looked weak. He there were moments even beyond the hand raising where he just could not make a coherent point. Like even on things as simple as uh, Ukraine, climate change, he just couldn't like he couldn't muster like clear positions. Yeah, and I think he really gave an opening to Vivek because Vivek would step in and be like. Yeah, I'm like against, you know, supporting Ukraine, et cetera. Like, I, I personally don't love that position, but like the clarity of it was noticeable mm-hmm. and especially noticeable an electorate that has shown over the past few cycles that it doesn't like traditional politicians. Yeah. And I think that the attacks on him as, as like a rookie who shouldn't be training on the job doesn't sit well. I mean, honestly, with me or with a lot of people on the right, I think. I think I think there is an appetite for somebody who comes in who who knows their positions, who does not have special interests in the back of their mind in the way that Trump was an outsider politically. And I think Vivek is demonstrating that he's very capable of of moving independently and just knowing where he falls on things, which I think is appealing to a lot of people. One thing that I'm like generally watching right now is a lot of like the left-wing MSNBC world really enjoying the fact that DeSantis did not have his like moment last night. To a point that, I don't know, there's just something about this whole spectacle that irks me. There are people who are so cynically rooting against the number two behind Trump and yet are still at the same time putting in their, like, you know, saying Trump is the the existential threat to the democracy in our country and this and that. And they are so gleeful when the number two star is not rising. And I... I don't think that's a very patriotic stance. I think that's fundamentally anti-American, fundamentally partisan in a way that and I'm not saying you as as I'm this is not a personal thing. I'm just watching like all the MSNBC Wait, people you, being you like, oh, I love this. You started this segment making fun of him, calling him a beta. Uh, and I think like Trump. No, I can't. I'm not saying he's beyond reproach. I'm saying there's he's a, too there's easy a, to make fun of, I think is the point. No, I'm not saying he's beyond reproach. I'm not saying, oh, don't don't touch him and don't criticize him. There's a glee that I'm taking issue with because I would really like for anybody on that stage. I literally don't even care who it is. I would. I like would for buy this. Anyone I would buy on this, this if it weren't for the universal rise. universal scorn of DeSantis. You on this podcast, me on this podcast, Trump himself, Trump's team. I don't team, have scorn for him. The other people, you called him a beta. That doesn't mean I have scorn <laughs> for like, him. I criticize. I don't. I don't keep any friends too close. What am I saying? I think that. I would buy this point. I think this isn't about the left. I, I really don't. I think that the GOP no, it's debate about is partisans. about the GOP. It's not about the, I'm, I think they're, but I just would like to see the country in general get out of this partisan mindset of like, oh, Trump's the easiest one to beat in the general election. If he's the fundamental threat to democracy that people purport him to be, we should all be rooting for the best possible quality candidate to be coming out of both primaries and it's just really cynical and it's it, like I'm just but meta upset about I this think, in general. But I think I'm like cynic- I, it's so cynical. It's so fucked up. I, it's so anti-American. It really. But I think me. that you are. I think like I think both things could be true. I think DeSantis can be extremely easy to caricature and flawed and in ways that are like just impossible to ignore. And I think people are bummed out that there isn't a clear alternative to Trump emerging this race, either in the polls or substantively. I think there are people for whom both of those are true. I think there are other people who are really liking the concept of Trump being the primary candidate and who are the same people who are 
painting him as a threat to democracy on a fundamental level. And so I think that's a very un-American sort of vibe in a certain area of the Democrats as all. I would say that, like, at least from my circles, most people I know are, even though statistically have a better chance of Trump, like the threat of his, like as Yang called revenge tour to me, trumps everything else. But like, let's put that aside because let's focus on this debate because I do think like, although like the left wing response to the debate is interesting, I do think like the state of the Republican Party is really like, I think what was on display. And although this was kind of like the runner up pageant, it does, I think, indicate where the party's going. And also like in the event that something happens with Trump, as unlikely as some people may think it is, it's important to like kind of note where the contours of the party are. And I think like with Pence and Vivek, if we take those being the dominant presences on the stage, I think you have like an interesting contrast of like the past and future of conservatism and, or at least conservatism or Republicanism. I'm not sure, like, I think it's up for debate whether one would characterize them both as conservative or not. I'm interested from your perspective, somebody who has spent a lot of time with conservatives and with people on the right, which of those visions do you think is more appealing? I think that for me personally, the Vivek vision is more appealing. Um, I think there's, I mean, I think there's a bunch of different iterations that somebody who breaks that like neocon traditional Republican framework could go down. I think he's putting himself in a position where he's not hostile to the MAGA crowd and he's playing, he's not, he's not going to offend them in any way, shape or form, but he also has a libertarianism about him, I think. And it's on certain issues and just in general, that's not like big government MAGA sort of like, I think that he's doing two things at once. And I don't think that he's the best example of where I think conservatism or the right could move in the long term because there's this elephant in the room, Trump issue. However, I do think that a more libertarian populist sort of future is very much possible on the right. I think there's an appetite for that. It would just need to be the right person to mobilize that sort of vibe because I don't think we're going back to the the old school Bush vibes. That's a thing of the past. That's not, that will never revive, I don't think, in any meaningful and considerable way. And, and his libertarianism, how would you characterize it? Because, you know, in watching him, and I did a I did a different podcast yesterday where I had to go through his recent interviews and I became more acquainted with him than I had in the past. Here's what I've seen him do. And, and I know you've gone and spent some time with him in New Hampshire. He's very just asking questions. Like I listened to one interview after another where he's like, hey, like, how do we know that? Like how many FBI agents were on the planes in 9-11? And then he gets pushed on it. He's like, oh, I'm not saying that. There was anything wrong. And I'm like, and he does this over and over and over again. He did this on China where he was basically like, hey, like if I'm president after my term, essentially Taiwan is on their own. And he floated that in tandem with, I would say, like a pretty hands-off approach to Ukraine. And when he's pushed on this repeatedly, I, I would listen to these interviews of him, full transcript, and then he would then be pushed on his positions and then he would retreat from those positions. And so I'm like... Uh, this is really fascinating, but then he's also got this part of him that it's hard to square like a libertarianism with his position on the last election, which I would say is very Trumpy. And I would say like, if you're a libertarian, like you'd want the government out of people's way. And I think losing an election and trying to hold on to power feels like a very non-libertarian position to me. And for a lot of people, 
whether it's Democrats, independents, et cetera, the last election I think is a good example of this. What abortion and democracy were two very big issues that I think cost Republicans that election. I think his relatively extreme positions on the core democracy issues to me feel like a, like a real liability. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not, unless I'm mistaken, he is not outright said that the election is stolen. He's just putting himself in the neutral camp. Yeah, he's, he, when he was pressed on this, uh-huh. he would not say if he would have certified the results, which to me, and then he's also said he would pardon the president and he's pushing people to say he'd pardon the president. And to me, it's like, you can't say you would certify the results of the last election. That, that seems like a really odd position. Uh, and also, like, it's, you've yeah, had enough he's time. Playing it, he's put, trying to play it neutral with both camps. I think I, that's one of those things where I just don't think that we can predict the future of the Republican Party on the basis of the fact that people are having to do weird gymnastics to appease the MAGA base right now. I think if if Trump were out of the picture, it would be much more clear where people stand and like this is yeah i don't know i mean i i agree that that's his his biggest liability in the general however it's helping him right now in the primary to actually get some trump people's support like if if trump were out of the picture i think that a lot of the maga people would would tack towards him and i think he's a more positive vision for the future of the republican party in my opinion but yeah i don't know i mean i i think that's definitely going to be his biggest liability if he were to ascend beyond the primary stage. I don't know that that's in the cards, but. Yeah. You know, as a young candidate too, I thought his position, like he was the clearest on climate change, but not necessarily in a way that would appeal to young people. It was like, and I, this is like another area where I think he'll lawyer his way through it. I'm sure. But he like candidates were asked whether they believe, you know, human caused climate change or whatever is real. I forget the exact wording of it. And there were just not a lot of clear responses to that among the field, but Vivek called climate change, the climate change agenda. A hoax, agenda. Uh, That's a, that is book. a clue, but that yeah. is an important nuance. That is a yeah, very is, important again, nuance. Like, but let's talk about this. The question was, do you think climate change is real? And he said, the climate change agenda is a hoax. And then it's left to the electorate to be like, well, okay, are you being purposefully evasive of the question? Or do you also think climate change itself is not real? Like, this is where it gets to, if you want to not be a politician, then don't be a politician. Answer the question. Otherwise, uh, you're just a a slicker version of everything else that we've seen before. And I think this is a question a lot of people have, is like, if he actually becomes a threat to somebody like Trump in this race, he's not going to get away with this kind of stuff. Like, you're going to hear a lot of Vivek the fake And also, if he's the person who actually emerges from this race and he has to go up in a general election, the American people, like when you listen to that, one thing or the other, you can't sell yourself as this new, clear, bold alternative and then refuse to be clear on the issues of the day. You can go through like his, like I I really implore the audience to go through some of his recent interviews that he's done and the back and forth and haggling over, did he say this? Did he say that? Whatever. And there's sometimes I'm like, I could see what you're saying, but you're going out of your way not to be clear on issues that are not small. And so, I don't know. I'm not sold. I think you do your homework on him and his stances on like corporate America and corporate activism. It's pretty obvious, which I think a lot of people, a lot of conservatives are really interested in him. And I think it's, to me at least, saying the word agenda in there, I think is purposeful, but also a completely different point. 
I don't think he would say that sentence without the word agenda in there. I I would say on that question, the best answer I think was Nikki Haley, in my opinion, about like saying, talk to China and India about that and don't kneecap our our corporations. That was the most obvious and like clean response I saw out of that. I I like that. Yeah. I don't know. Agenda is a choice word, but I'm not, I'm not offended. I'm not like, I'm not, I don't think he's dog whistling that the entire thing is a hoax necessarily. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could probably do a million rounds on this. I think like there's a clear way to answer the question and not. And I also think that, and it, and like, if it were just a one-off, it would be one thing, but it falls into this falls on the same week that we had to haggle over his comments over 9-11 and his comments over Taiwan and his comments now over climate change. And I don't know. I'm just asking questions, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, the, the 9-11 thing to me is, like, I don't use the word offensive, but I think it is as disingenuous as, as anything I've seen in this race. Because, like, he knew what he was doing. And he did it twice. He did it with Hendrickson and he did it on a separate podcast. And in the se- when he was pushed on it in the separate podcast, Wait, what is it? He said, "Oh, I'm just Define talking about the it. Saudis." It being raising questions about 9/11. So in one case, he was asked about it, and he retreated to say, "Oh, I'm just like the 9/11 Commission. They didn't like look into the Saudis, etc." And then the, this audio comes out with Hendrickson, the, is this Atlantic, the Atlantic reporter, one? who, yeah. And when you read it, it, it's very clear. He's like, he's putting 9/11 and January 6th together in the same sentence, and then he's saying, "Well." How come the U.S. government hasn't told us how many FBI agents were on those planes? And I'm like, well, what if there were? What are you trying to say? I don't get it. Like, like, yeah, it's no, just that a, was such a. But he did not to, say like, the thing about this. the plane twice, correct? What thing about the plane? About agents being on the plane. That was not something that he brought up twice. That specific. Question, he he brought right? it up in the interview with John Hendrickson for the Atlantic. So he was like, but, well, how but come the U.S. government? He's brought up nine eleven as a whole, but the. He's not multiple times asked that question about the plane, right? He has multiple times raised questions about the government's account of 9-11. Well, I don't and, think there's uh, anything wrong with raising questions about the account of 9-11. Yeah, yeah. No, but what I'm saying is he has now twice done it and in both cases did the very thing that falls in line with this climate change thing, which is that he gives the person who's asking him the question everything they want and obviously like amongst like I would say rational people raises alarm bells. And then when you try to like hold him to what he's doing, he then gets very slippery and people like, if you're listening, I don't think this is a slippery one. I think you could literally just open up his book and have his entire stance on corporate like agendas and corporate America and how he feels about green initiatives. Like I, I don't think this one is as, not backed up as the 9-11 thing. I was just wanting to clarify because I think where he crosses the line is like the kind of bizarre hypothetical that he brings up about FBI agents on the plane, which he immediately says he doesn't think is the case, but he's very clearly just saying like, I'm just asking questions, which as a whole is not something that I have an issue with. But if he had made, if he had said that specific question multiple times, I would like, it was obviously not well thought out. He's very calculated. He's very careful with his words. He's remarkably articulate in interviews where he, like, when sometimes you write out people's quotes and and they're very unartful, like I mine are right now. He's so like concise and fast in the way that he speaks and so articulate. And you write down his quotes and they sound like 
chat GPT kind of like what uh, Christy said. And that was one of the few moments in that Atlantic article where I was like, oh, he did not think that one through and immediately started backtracking. And that was an oops, which is unusual for him. I think that one was definitely an immediate regret oops on his part. Okay, well, we'll have plenty of time to talk more about him. Uh, I'm fascinated by, before we move off of this, just like what your impression of Nikki Haley was, because I've been reading the sort of takes afterwards, and some people are saying she had a good night, some people saying that she was, like, there's a, I think there's a consensus that Tim Scott, DeSantis, and I'm probably missing some others, but like, they're, I mean, obviously, Hutchinson and, you know, Bergham, no, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of expectation for them. But I think there's a, a, a consensus that Scott didn't do what he needed to do that DeSantis didn't do what he needed to do. But I think there's differing takes on Haley. What do you think about whether she improved her chances or not last night? I think she performed well. I don't think she has a clear lane outside of, like, I think her and Pence would weirdly be people vying for the same voters um, who are looking for something more traditionally conservative, more neocon vibes in a, like, a kind of comforting old back how it used to be kind of way. I don't think, I think that's going to be her biggest struggle is that she and Pencer are going for the same voting block. And I'm, I, but I think that she performed well. I think definitely she performed well. I wouldn't be surprised if she goes up a little bit, but I think that's her biggest competition is, is running up against him for sure. Yeah. And I think like people got to remember that this is, there are going to be multiple at bats here and you kind of want to peak at the right time. I mean, it's just all clouded by the fact that Trump wasn't there and he's dominating in the polls. And so this is this could be a totally irrelevant exercise. Uh, but, you know, taking for a given like that this matters in some way, the I think the the combination of Haley, DeSantis, Pence, Vivek kind of turbulence that we'll see coming out of this will set the stage for at least like who any potential alternative could be. And the question is that I have in my mind, if you're in DeSantis's camp, and I've seen his camp putting this out today, is that they claim that he did what he needed to do, which is the spin that they need to say. But there are some people who aren't him who would say this, which is basically avoid being the target of people's ire, which he may or may not have accomplished. They think he did. And that Vivek is going to take all the heat moving forward in the next couple of debates. And that will allow... DeSantis to kind of reemerge is kind of their theory. It's not a crazy theory. It's just like that, but that's totally dependent on two things. One is Vivek taking heat and that heat actually hurting him. Uh, Sometimes Mm -hmm. the heat helps as Trump showed in the last, uh, you know, the first time he ran. But the second is all of this depends upon Trump knowing. (laughs) So it's like, it's like, there's like, it's a, it's a, I would say it's a high concept plan, (laughs) you know? Although I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to rule out the possibility of somebody throwing in their hat after the primary as an independent or yeah, I don't know. I would say good job to the Fox news. Um, people who did this, I felt it was really well, well run debate. Yeah. McCallum. You know, Brett Bear, I hadn't spent a lot of time like with Brett Bear or McCallum, but I thought like these are very hard to do. And especially when you got that many candidates. And I thought the candidates like tried many times to steamroll them. And there's just like only so much you could do to police this, but I thought they did a really good job. And I also don't think those questions that they asked were that much different than you'd get from 
like an MSNBC or what I would ask in that context. Like, I think that they were like a lot of questions that were pretty straightforward. They weren't that loaded. I mean, there were a couple jabs at Biden here and there, but you could kind of expect that uh, in the context. Well, Ricky, enough about politics. Let's get to an issue that is like quietly, and depending on who you are, not so quietly exacting a toll on Americans and parents. Uh, there have been a series of articles that have come out, Wall Street Journal, uh, shout out to Christian Robles in the Wall Street Journal, Catherine Ann Edwards in Bloomberg, pulling together data about childcare in America. And we are in the midst of a crisis that seems like it's going to get much, much worse. So there are a couple contours to this issue. Number one is that childcare prices are rising much faster than inflation. So the national average price of daycare and preschool services rose 6% in July from a year before. Uh, and if you index that to inflation generally, it's about double inflation generally, which is at 3.2%. And this comes as federal childcare aid is set to expire. Uh, we'll link in the show notes this piece by Catherine Ann Edwards in Bloomberg. Uh, so we had um, pandemic era funding that's set to end at the end of September. That's, this would leave uh, more than 3 million kids without a spot and others who have subsidized childcare. More than 80% of licensed providers received some uh, kind of help over the past two years, and that affects 9.6 million children. So you have those two things together combined with an incredible labor shortage in the industry. Uh, we'll also link in the show notes to this piece by Harriet Torrey from the Wall Street Journal from February 2023, which is just alarming And when it talks about this industry as a whole. I'm not sure what the way out of this is, Ricky. Yeah, I... I mean, I feel like I'm going to sound like such a basic libertarian with this, but I think what we're really seeing here, at least one of the large factors that's contributing to this rise beyond the rate of inflation in general is just the fact that we've pumped money into a system and allowed it to artificially be inflated and I think extort people in a way that perhaps it would not otherwise be able to. And at the same time, we have a situation where the government... I mean, we're also still dealing with the the reverberations of forcibly locking people down and changing their rhythm with their children and and who's performing child care and who's working from home and who's working here and there. And, and like, I think it's just like a lot of sticking our hands into people's lives in a way. Some I'm not saying we should never have locked down at all, a period or any of that. But like, this is just the consequence of of fundamentally rejiggering people's entire family lives, millions of Americans, while at the same time artificially keeping things afloat with pandemic era aid. And this is a serious issue. Like, I don't even know. I, I think the way there's the way that we're going to get out of this, I think, is I am expecting that we're probably headed towards a recession and consistently historically in times of recession child care costs go down because it's reacting to the market i also think that just in general when when the aid is pulled um i do think that the market there will be a market correction that will be really disruptive to millions of americans lives and it like it's not something that i'm saying in a, a positive way but i do think that it will self correct a little bit but in the immediate future like unless yeah i think a recession will will probably pull us back down to to planet Earth in that front, but it's a, I think, a really under attended to issue that no one is really talking about. The fact that millions of Americans potentially 
would have to like drop out of the workforce or or reconfigure their work life balance or their job or look for remote options. And I wonder if we might see an increase in hybrid working um, options again, kind of as I think more and more offices are pulling employees in in person. Maybe they'll reverse course a little bit as a result of this new pressure. But yeah, I think this is a huge deal. Yeah, I think, I mean, these articles do point to the pandemic, but like a lot of things that were exacerbated during the pandemic, there definitely seem to be you know, the sort of the seeds of this issue well before that and certainly after it. And I think like the question is we're now back to work and, or like at least the pandemic restrictions are largely over. And also you look at this data, you know, red state, blue state, it's a problem everywhere. And you look ahead to say, all right, well, what does this look like? I'm trying to think of if metaphorically, this is like higher ed where the the government involvement is causing the inflation or exacerbating it or whether it's something like Medicaid, Medicare, where the government, depending on how you look at those two programs, could actually be playing a part in keeping the prices stabilized. Mm. I kind of lean towards the latter. The costs are insane. Like The cost, according to the Labor Department, and this is from earlier in the year, in counties with uh, more than 1 million residents, Center-based infant care costs over $17,000 for a kid. Preschool costs over $12,000 for a kid. And school-age center care costs over $10,000 a year for a kid. That's incredible. And the question is, how do we... You ha- We have to either decrease those costs. Like, there's only one or two options. We either have to decrease... And that's if you could find it, which, like, all this data seems to suggest that it's really hard to find seats in these places. We either have to decrease the cost to, I don't know, like immigration and Lord knows what else, or subsidize it or both, because I just think people can't shoulder that burden. It's unreasonable. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in terms of whether this was the writing was on the wall, 100%, this was an ongoing issue. But the concept of 3 million kids spontaneously losing spots is 100% the result of a pandemic. That would not have happened in the first place. I think that reality is going to be earth shattering for a lot of families. And I think there will be business models and people and individuals who are able to cater to a new emerging market of those 3 million people who need an alternative, who cannot afford the system that's in place right now. So I do think that there's there's going to be a market correction, obviously. That's just like inevitable. I'm not into But a question for you on that, Ricky, when you say market correction, do you mean the market will grow, the cost will go down, or that... The cost is going to go down. Yeah. How, though? There's demand. There's demand for more economical uh, versions of this, and I think that the costs are going to go down or at least stop inflating beyond the rate of inflation in general. That's not going to be sustainable. That's not going to continue. There are millions of people who are going to be in acute need of an alternative, and, and at least for some of them somebody's going to rise to the occasion of figuring out how to make it more practical for them. I I just think that's inevitable. Um, Not for all 3 million people, perhaps, but inevitably, I think that will help. And I also, like, I don't want a universal pre-K thing. I don't think that's... I don't want the government to own kids from, like, day one. But I would be entirely in favor of a child tax break. I have no issue with that whatsoever. I think that's almost like a voucher system sort of situation for parents. And 
I don't I don't have any problem with that at all. <laughs> the own the own kids. I I forget what this, what was the line you gave me the last time we talked about this. The trapping kids in prisons or something. I forget what the line yeah, was. Yeah, I don't know. I had some radical anti-school stance. Yes, anti-public school. My current working hypothesis, and maybe this is like where I, I I'm more predictively progressive, is that we sh- this is a function of government that you should be guaranteed a place to have your kid from the minute your kid is on this earth, you should have somewhere that you can count on to have in, like take care of that kid so that you could be a productive member of society and that kid could be looked after. And yeah, that that's my baseline assumption. And I think it's an extension of the basic function of government theory I have, which is I support Medicaid. Uh, I think it's the most important government program because no matter what people's theory of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, this or that, like nobody can sensibly argue that a five-year-old has the ability to feed themselves, yada, yada, and, you know, get adequate healthcare. So like government food assistance, government healthcare assistance, and in this case, like a place to be while your parent works should be like something that we as a society guarantee for children. That's just my basic theory. So I support expanding this at the same time of you know having the government and this is less of an issue in certain places than others but you know having the government kind of get out of the way and allow people to create more fluid less regulated collectives to to accomplish mm-hmm. childcare which right yeah. now like you have the sort of family you can't unit let your that's kid able to do play certain at a things freaking park on their own without getting right. arrested there's a lot that could happen, and, and certainly this has been happening in certain places, but it's harder to do in some places than others. And once you cross a certain certain threshold and engage in commercial activity, licensure requirements and stuff come in. But if you, like Ricky, if you if you and I were neighbors and we had four other neighbors and we all decided we're just going to have like our kids, we're going to pool together and have one nanny look after our kids, that's fine. The minute we turn that into a business in certain places, it gets a lot harder to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where yeah. maybe the government can help. These, these costs are insane, though. Rina Torchinsky in 2022 in the Wall Street Journal wrote that, and I think we may have done a segment on this, but it now costs more than $300,000 to raise a kid throughout their lifetime. And at that time, that was 2022, and remember the inflation has gone up pretty significantly over these numbers. At the time, it was over $18,000 a year just to raise a kid in this country. When you compare that to people's wages, if you make $30,000 a year, you make $40,000 a year, and you're, so your take-home pay is much less than that, and you're already shelling out $18,000 a year for a kid, that is backbreaking stuff and yeah. something needs to be done about it. Yeah. I mean, I agree in a sense on, on having a right of a place to be. I don't, I, but I believe more in like the minimal government function of a social safety net and not necessarily a universal guarantee for, for people in general. I mean, I just, I would much rather see a tax break for working parents who, I don't know that I would just rather see them spend that money as they see fit and apply it to whatever program is best for their child. Yeah, but I think that part of it is like the child tax credit and all that, like we've seen like a lot of movement on that and like it's kind of an underreported area, but I think like in some cases it just hasn't been enough to, to get at this issue. So Ricky, this is a, a big day for my former law school classmates, um, Ronan Farrow, who I had the the great privilege of overlapping with, I think, in addition to Vivek, although I don't know if I've met Vivek while I was there because he was a couple classes behind me. He was too busy rapping libertarian raps. Are you aware of this fact that that he used to be a libertarian rapper? Is that right? Yeah. 
He recently wrapped Eminem at a campaign event, which is just- Oh, I did see that. I didn't want to oh. give you a hard time about that. But <laughs> uh, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but um, as our producer, Mickey, pointed out, this, this new tennis video from Vivek, not to get bring it back to Vivek, is fascinating on many levels. One of which is that it doesn't appear that any of those balls he hit would have gone in, which is just a funny sort of aside. But I'm going to stop taking shots at Vivek today. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of comments about that. But let's talk about Musk, right? We, 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 look, every time I try to avoid Musk, something happens that requires us to talk about him, in part because he's just a very powerful guy. And Ronan Farrell dropped this article, I think, yesterday uh, in The New Yorker that Ricky, it basically, it argues that, that Musk essentially is running a shadow government. I don't want to be hyperbolic about it, but that he is very influential in a number of different areas. And was there anything in here that stood out to you, like one way or the other? Like, I know it was comprehensive and went into Musk's bio and all of his different business interests, et cetera, but did Ronan sell you on any of this? Well, firstly, I don't even know if it can be called an article. Like, I've never understood this theory of journalism where it, the, the audio version of it took me an hour to get through. Like, this is not an article. I don't, it's a, book. It's a short book, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Like, for example, it, they, they're giving, uh, or an example that he gives is how Musk was initially providing Starlink connections to Ukraine on his own dollar and was effectively supporting all the internet infrastructure in Ukraine in the beginning of the conflict. And that he ended up deciding that he no longer was going to do that. He pulled back and ended up getting a contract with the Pentagon to, to do it no longer on his own dime and is continuing to do so now. But um, obviously something that shook up Ukraine quite a bit and something that's super concerning. And I, I think that is an insane amount of power that one person has. However, that's the perfect example to me of like, what, like, what is he supposed to be doing? Like running a, a charity, a personal charity campaign for Ukraine at $400 million a year. Like it's a completely appropriate for the government to contract him to do that and not to expect him to be paying like, I, I don't know. Like if we're going to support Ukraine's internet, what's wrong with the contract becoming the thing in the end? And why are we in a position or why, why is our government so incompetent that we're in a position where one person is holding up the internet infrastructure in Ukraine and it's at his own whim? Like that's a failure of the government, in my opinion, that we're kissing ass to him and like licking his boots. It's not his fault. Like be better. The Pentagon should be better. You know, it's funny, Ronan Farrow tweeted basically exactly that yesterday uh, when he was talking about the article where he basically said, the point of this article is not necessarily to be like Elon Musk is an evil person. It's to say that the government has ceded its basic functions to outsiders and Musk is just yeah. one representation of that, which yeah. I find I find that to be the message, right? Totally. And, and you know, although... Like long-time listeners would know I'm no fan of Musk, but I think like the key point in this article, which is like the Starlink internet service in Ukraine, is not a clear-cut Elon is bad or good because he did provide the service in the beginning. And and even Kara Swisher, who has taken a turn and been pretty critical of Musk, I remember at the time defended Musk when he started to ask for the money for this because it's like, well, yes, like a, the world's richest person in a, in a perfect world, I would love for them to donate 
things like this, but it's not it's certainly not his obligation. And I also wouldn't love for him to donate it personally. Like, I don't think that's I don't want to live in a world where like mega rich people are making considerable international political decisions with no accountability or oversight. Like, that's not a world that I want to live in. I actually I, I don't like the concept of him even having done it in the first place without involving the government more broadly. Yeah, I think about it as like, it, it all depends on how you view the threat of Putin in Ukraine. And in this case, like, maybe it doesn't all, just depend on it, but like, as I see it, like if we were like using a metaphor of like, you know, World War II or something, right, which is obviously more extreme. And like, you know, JP Morgan or whoever was alive at that time was like, you know, I have like factories and I want to like help the war effort and yada, yada, yada. Like that's, there's a whole conversation whether the U.S. should be more prepared or whatever. But like, I do think I'm fine with billionaires stepping in and helping in this case. When we're US fighting and, the war. Say, yeah, but like in this case, like in that case, it would have been like, let's say it's before the U.S. gets into the war and they're helping, you know, send supplies to Britain, you know. In, my, in that case, I'm like, great. Like we're, we're democracies. We look out for each other. It colors the way I think about Ukraine and why I think it's an important effort to shore them up. But I, I'm getting a little uh, uh, upriver on this one. But just to say, Musk wasn't obligated to do any of that. So you and I could disagree about whether it was a good or bad idea in the first place. Yeah, he certainly no, I, wasn't I agree, obligated. I agree with you fundamentally. So I think like the idea that when he, like his pulling back or threatening to pull back eventually was somehow evil, I have a problem with. Now, there's all sorts of weird stuff around when it happened that are reported in this article. Like, did he leave Ukrainians in the lurch and all that? And I just, I just don't have enough information to know one way or the other how to make sense of some of the Financial Times reporting or others that say that, like, you know, Musk like cost lives or whatever by pulling back the stuff. I, I just don't think that the article did enough work to establish that. And then there's this whole separate line of argument about whether Musk is in direct contact with Putin and playing the role of statesman. And look, like I think you can agree, like when I read it, I'm like, what Musk is, if Musk in fact did what he apparently said to a bunch of people, which is talk to Putin and then float a peace agreement that would have largely given Putin the terms of what he wanted, I think that would have been a bad outcome. I still didn't see the smoke and gun of like, this is like some evil enterprise. Uh, and so I think like, although an interesting read I don't think it lived up to the hype, I guess, is the point. I did, it didn't add enough to me to the public domain of things that we didn't already know. There's some interesting anecdotes of like generals and other government officials feeling like they have to keep Musk happy, which is, I don't think whether you're a Musk fan or not, like nobody should want like government officials having to keep billionaires happy, right? No, I, I mean, it's got me heated up, but like in the wrong or inverse way that I think most people would be potentially. But, you know, like, it's sort of a tale as old as time in terms of like Lockheed Martin and all these like enormous corporations that basically are running our in military industrial complex world entirely. Although one nice thing is that it's at least this is a person and not like a group of lobbyists that are like shadowy figures working on behalf of a corporate interest. At least this is just like Musk being put in some bizarre position, but I'll tell you what just really like makes me eh, like so irritated. I don't even have the word for it is the fact that like it's this is a technology that we knew was being developed that we knew came out. We know that there are 
countries around the the world that are in need of internet. Like if I'm someone at the Pentagon, like where were they? Why were they not figuring out some sort of contract ahead of time? And then not only that, like before the Ukraine thing even happened, but then once it did happen, why were they not instantaneously on top of pulling that, reeling that in and not putting one person and one corporation in control of like donating to this cause, which I don't think is even appropriate. And then what are they doing? Like, where, where is the, the, like, <laughs> no, truly, like, where's the anticipation? Like, what are they doing? It's fucking well, crazy. We spend, I forget the stat, but we spend more than X number of countries behind us on defense. And, and I think the American people have, have a right to ask, what the hell are they spending money on? Not to mention the Pentagon in November failed their fifth audit. They failed their audit. They're the only government agency since the 90s when we had they have to be audited now they're the only one who has not been able to account for their assets they have 3.5 trillion dollars in assets and they were unable to account for 61 percent of them what the hell is that where is our tax money going and why are we making elon musk do the job of the department of defense like this is a really libertarian vibe article for me, at least in the end, because it's making me really heated about where the hell trillions of dollars are in our government yeah, and why I mean, we can't I'm hundred percent with you. And actually this is an area where there's bipartisan, there's, there should be room for bipartisan agreement, but because of like the unique politics of defense spending, it's very hard to get Congress to move on this stuff because there's so many jobs at issue. Uh, the, you know, this stuff is doled out across the country and it's just really hard to dislodge. One other thing here, though, I don't think we needed this article to make this point, but towards the end of the article, Farrow talks about how uh, Musk's hesitation on Ukraine perhaps lies in the fact that a facility in Shanghai produces half of all Tesla cars, and that Musk depends on the goodwill of China, which has lent support to Russia in this conflict. Musk recently acknowledged to the Financial Times that Beijing has disapproved of his decision to provide internet service to Ukraine uh, and sought assurances that he would not deploy similar technology in China. This obviously is relevant to Taiwan. And unfortunately, like, look, I, I have all my opinions about what people should and shouldn't be allowed to do with respect to China. So I'm not saying this is illegal or anything like that, but I don't love the fact that, and in this case, one person, but there are a lot of other examples we've talked about in the context of the MBA and others. I don't love the fact that so many of our most powerful corporations and business leaders are completely owned by China on this kind of stuff. Like they, like they're not, I mean, completely owned is a hyperbole, but like clearly like conflicted and, you know, under the leverage of a, an autocratic regime uh, that is hostile to American interests. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's more than just individual billionaires and stuff. It's entire industries. And it's disturbing to see people contort in order to avoid offending their international interest. It's a concern that I certainly share. I'm not sure what the solution is, but it's definitely not to give them the keys to the Department of Defense's like arsenal. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I don't know. We agreed on that one. I was expecting yeah, we must did. derangement syndrome from you, but I, to your credit, I was, I was wrong. I mean, I, tr- I mean, like, I honestly try to, I try, nobody's perfect, but I, I, I've been trying to, I think like one thing that's, that happens sometimes is I do left-wing media a lot. Like I know you do right-wing media a lot and 
I realize that sometimes if I'm doing a story after I've been on an outlet like Midas or something, I kind of have like, I get, I get influenced like just by like the environment. And I noticed that like in, there are certain stories where I'm, I have a rooting interest in terms of what I want it to say, right? Like when I pull open an article about Musk, I want it to say that he's evil because I just think he's, it's not even like active thing, but it's like, you know, it's a, we all go through this. It's like, I'm reading it and I'm like hunting for the right piece. I'm persuadable on the Musk is a nefarious character narrative. And so I have to work extra hard not to get influenced, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and in reading yeah. that article, that's kind of like my posture is like, all right, I, I, pull, I try really hard. Like I'm pulling open this article to be like, all right, I really have a lot of strong feelings about Musk. And so I almost have to read this as if it's somebody you really like being written about. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah, I had the experience of opening it up and saying, I will defend him at any stop, no matter what is in here, <laughs> even if he's murdering babies <laughs> in his basement, it's fine. Just kidding. But um, Jack Dorsey is someone that I have a similar experience with on that front where I, I feel like I put him in my brain with all the big tech, bad, evil sensors. And he's actually become a much more nuanced person. And so I don't know. Yeah, you like his RFK stance, I imagine. I'm interested in that, but he's not, he's not the caricature or like he was somebody who I was painting as like unilaterally, like just in that like evil, bad, big tech camp. And he's actually far more interesting and nuanced and somebody who like I've learned from the same sort of experience of feeling as though I'm like instinctively biased against someone and then having to open my mind. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We will be back here on Tuesday. And in the meantime, please leave us some voicemails. I'm sure you have many thoughts after this episode. Our phone number is 321-200-0570. And we'll see you next time. Bye.